Well, if you are um, new with us, we typically work through books of the Bible on Sunday morning here at Imago Day, and we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, one of our kids was playing church recently, not my kids, but a kid at IDC, as, they're, uh, as they often do, and uh, the dad was listening in on what his son was about to preach on, uh, and he was preaching from the book of Peter Pan. So... We got a little work to do there, but I'm excited about his excitement. Uh, but we are in 2 Corinthians today, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. I want to pray a brief prayer and ask for the Lord's help as we dive in. Father, we pray you come today, give us eyes to see. We pray for anyone who may have a veil over their hearts, that you would lift it, that they may see Christ and be transformed. May all of us today, as we ponder his excellencies, um, just be gripped afresh with the wonder of grace the beauty of the gospel. Make us more like Jesus as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Now, you probably picked up that this is a very dense passage. Uh, it, it eventually funnels down into a really important verse at the very end. That's verse 18 I'm speaking of, which is one of the primary verses uh, in the New Testament for talking about uh, how a Christian is transformed, how we become more like Jesus. So uh, we'll get there in due time, I hope, uh, but we've got a little work to do before we get there. The key word in this passage, I think, would be glory. It appears 10 times in uh, verses 7 to verse 18. And what Paul is essentially doing in this passage is contrasting old covenant glory, uh, the ministry of Moses, with new covenant glory, which is greater. Um, greater blessings, and, and uh, as we're going to see, uh, uh, seven of them at least that Paul draws out. So it's a contrast of glory. We left off last week with verse 6 of chapter 3 where he mentions this idea of the new covenant. That is, the age in which we live, the Messiah has come, the events of Easter have happened, he has ascended uh, into heaven, and the Spirit has been poured out. We are in this final age, this new covenant age. And going from the old covenant to the new is like going from a horse and buggy to a Lamborghini, right? It's like, you know, going, watching a t-ball game to being a third base uh, front row uh, at Fenway Park in Boston. It's like going from Spam to Angus Barn, uh, Angus Barn Steak. It's, it's quite an upgrade. It's an improvement. It's, it's actually something glorious and, and altogether new in many ways. Uh, and so what Paul does is... And verses 7 to 11 give a series of uh, if statements. If this is true, then how much more is it true of the new covenant? And then he continues a contrast but switches the, the, the pattern, uh, and that is a, a, a two different veils, a veil that Moses wore, a physical veil, and a veil that is over certain people's hearts, unbelievers who have not yet received the gospel. And so let's look at these blessings of the new covenant. I have seven of them. First of all, the new covenant brings life. Verse 7, Paul says, For if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, last week we looked at how the Spirit brings life, and Paul is continuing this idea. This is a contrast here of the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit. And he is again encouraging us to think about the Spirit as the one who gives resurrection life. And he says regarding Moses, he's, he's bringing it back to uh, Exodus 34 when Moses met with God, regarding the, the letters on stone, uh, the law, that it was, he says, a ministry of death. So there was glory in this old covenant uh, age. 
to be sure, but it was being brought to an end. It wasn't uh, the, the end. It wasn't the high point of God's redemptive activity. Uh, and he says what it actually brought, if not reading the Bible rightly, not seeing the gospel in the Old Testament, it actually brings condemnation and death. And why is that? Why was this Old Covenant ministry a ministry of death? Well, because it brought sin to light. That's what the law does. It shows sin in its true colors. It is a, it, it's a ministry of death also because Paul says in Romans 7 that it ins- actually incites us to sin more. And what Paul's bringing out here, thirdly, regarding this ministry of death, is that it's powerless to change the human heart. The law cannot change the human heart. The law is good, as Paul says in many places, but it has a purpose, a function. The, pur- the, the problem is not with the law, but with the heart. And the law cannot change the heart. If all you have are laws for a religion, it's a religion of death. If all you have are things that you must do, a to-do list, uh, you will never have a new heart. No, the law shows us our sin, makes us run to Jesus who receives us, transforms us, the Spirit brings life to us. And that's what he contrasts in verse 8, this ministry of the Spirit. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And of course it does, because God, by the Spirit, brings dead hearts to life. One of the principal characteristics that we're seeing in 2 Corinthians regarding the work of the Holy Spirit is that He imparts life. Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If we live by the Spirit, he says in Galatians 5, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of God has given us life, the law of God written on our hearts, the Spirit of God empowering us to obey God, and one day the Spirit will raise us in resurrection glory just like Jesus. He will raise us. We receive a new body and new hair. Praise be to God. Amen. Yeah. I'm going to get one of those man buns in heaven. Watch out. And so the first blessing here of the new covenant is that we have life. And when we have life, everything changes. When we get a new heart, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. We see the whole world differently. We have a whole new hope, a whole new perspective. Secondly, there is the blessing of righteousness. In the new covenant age, we have the status of being, of having right standing with God. Notice he says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So the ministry of condemnation, once again, talking about the law, talking about the the age of Moses, the law shows us our sin. The law crushes us. As the uh, uh, John Bunyan, the old Puritan says in the little jingle, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. In the book Pilgrim's Progress that Bunyan wrote, there is a scene in which Faithful is climbing up a hill, and someone jumps out and attacks him, and continues to knock him down. And Faithful looks at this shadowy figure and he says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And the dark figure says, I do not know how to show mercy. Then another, another figure comes along and sees, he sees him and he's got nail prints in his hands. And this figure rescues Faithful. And then Christian sits Faithful down and says, the first figure was Moses. He doesn't know how to show mercy. The law 
crushes us, Christ rescues us. And he's given us a status of righteousness. James says in his letter that if you break the law at one point, then you're guilty. We cannot be saved by, by uh, trying to uh, keep the law. No, we go to Christ for our salvation. We go to Christ, as he says here, for righteousness. This is a ministry of righteousness. And what he's talking about here is a standing, a status that you have, either in a state of condemnation or in the state of righteousness. Paul uses this uh, word for righteousness, decalsune, eight times in this letter. Perhaps the most important verse that he uh, uses it in is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And I think that's how we should read it in chapter 3, when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we have received in Christ. We have received a, a declarative act, a legal declaration. When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. This is Paul's own journey. Remember, as he tried to be the Pharisee among Pharisees. And he says in Philippians 3, 9, Now I'm found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. How do you receive this right standing with God? By faith. It's the great doctrine of justification by faith. You see, the issue is only righteous people can go to heaven. That means we all got a big problem. None of us are righteous. We need someone else's righteousness. And the good news of the gospel is by faith, we are united to Jesus and we receive his righteousness. The very righteousness that God requires from us is the very righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's a glorious thing. Apart from the righteousness of Christ received by faith, we're left to our own self-salvation projects. And they fail, all of them. So what do you do with sin and guilt? You can try to deny that you have any, but that won't work. Your conscience will accuse you. You can believe that your good works, if they outweigh your bad works, then you can have entrance into heaven, but that won't work either. You can try to do a bunch of religious works. Martin Luther, trying to deal with his conscience, was told to go to Rome and kiss the holy steps at the church where he could receive atonement, and that did nothing for Luther. You can try to practice what's called mortification, where you try to deal with your guilt by practicing self-harm. There was a fellow in the Middle Ages named uh, Suso who subjected himself to all sorts of these kinds of deals. He actually devised a, an undergarment studded with 150 brass nails. He made up a bed that was shaped like a cross with nails on it, and he would lie on it to try to deal with his sin and his guilt. But praise God, we don't have to go up holy steps and kiss them to be saved, to receive righteousness. No, we don't have to sleep on a bed of nails. Jesus Christ was already nailed to an actual cross, and we receive his righteousness. As the hymn writer says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And this righteousness, because this is a new covenant, beautiful gospel here, has an already not yet dimension. We are standing in the righteousness of Christ as believers right now, and we await the final day, as we just sang about, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless, we stand before the throne. 
If you're just checking out Christianity and you're, you're, you're exploring the faith, please hear that the gospel is not an invitation for you to go do a bunch of things for God. The gospel is the declaration of what God has done for us in Christ. And that is grace. We receive it. And so what we do as Christians is we wake up every day and we think about this. We think about our standing. We think about our access to God. And you know what happens? The more you think on it, you actually do a whole lot of good things for God. But that's not how we become Christians. That's the result. That's the fruit of being a Christian. Righteousness. Thirdly, uh, quickly, the new covenant brings permanence. Verse 10, Paul says, Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? So the old covenant was never intended to be permanent. We already read about that in the previous verse, in verse 7, that it was being brought to an end. And now he contrasts it in verse 10, kind of summarizes the point that the new covenant glory surpasses it. And then he says again in verse 11, it was being brought to an end. So it's the transience of the old glory, the old covenant, being contrasted with the permanence of the new covenant. So this is one more reason given for the glory of the new covenant, and that is its duration. Because the new covenant has an already not yet dimension to it, it won't be replaced. It has an eschatological reality to it. We are righteous now, and we wait for the final day in which we are dressed in his righteousness then. And he says in verse 12, since we have uh, received such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites, watch this, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now that's interesting because you don't read about this in Exodus 34. The reason why Moses was veiling his face, and there are probably more than one reason, but what Paul mentions here is that uh, God did not want his people to mistake what era of history they're living in. If they would have gazed at the glory, they might have mistaken it as the high point of God's work and activity in the world. But it wasn't the high point. It was pointing us to the high point. And so it was being brought to an end. But this age in which we now live, this age of the Spirit, this age in which the Messiah has completed His work and will come again is permanent. The fourth blessing is hope. Paul gets very practical in verse 12 when he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who veils his face. No, we're, we're, we're very honest about our faith. We're transparent. We're bold. We have nothing to hide from this world. The good news is public news. And he says, it is filled with hope. Now, it's not though the people in the Old Covenant had no hope. They did have hope. Their hope was in the coming Messiah. And the gospel is in the Old Testament. The problem was with the mistake of how they read the Old Testament and continue to. It was pointing to Jesus. In the new covenant, this hope that we have brings greater clarity and it gives us greater assurance. Now, what is wrapped up with this hope? Well, this is a shorthand way of speaking of all the end time blessings that God will give to his people. Everything from a new body to new creation, no more pain, no more crying, no more sickness, no more death, an inheritance, seeing Jesus Christ himself. That's what we have received in the gospel. And this hope speaks to all of our emotions, all of our feelings today. If you are in fear, let this hope give you confidence. 
you know where the future is headed. If you are lonely, let this hope give you a sense of nearness to the Lord. The day is at hand. If you are angry, let this hope calm you down. Look what is coming for you. If you are hurt, let this hope bring you a sense of healing. Soon all things will be made new. If you are bitter, allow this to make you a more gracious and forgiving person as you consider that you've earned none of this. You have received it by grace and therefore we are gracious people. Or if you feel a sense of shame as a Christian today, let this hope of glory bring you a sense of honor. You are God's beloved child who's dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says, specifically in verse 12, this hope makes us bold. It gives us a sense of confidence. And that is because we know in the end, Jesus wins. And if we are in him, we win with him. So we don't hide our message. We're not hiding anything. We're honest. We're transparent. We make this gospel visible and public. Unlike Moses, who's veiling the face, we do not veil the gospel, but let the world hear about it. We share this hope. Verse 5, or number 5, rather, a new heart. The new covenant changes hearts. And this is where Paul goes next when he says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. You hear Paul speaking uh, specifically about Jewish people, but as he's going to say later in the next verse and down in chapter 4, the same is true for anyone who has not embraced the Messiah. That there is a veil, he says, that's over their heart. He just sort of transitions and he's like, while I'm talking about Moses' veil, let me just use that analogy and take it another direction. There's a veil over those who, whose hearts have not embraced the Messiah, but he says, if you turn to Christ, it is through Christ that the veil is lifted. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, again, Paul is not poo-poo in the Old Testament in this passage. Again, Paul preached from the Old Testament. He didn't show up at, you know, in Thessalonica and say, hey, guys, I wrote a new book called Romans. I, I think we should all study it together. Like he was pulling out the Old Testament, but he was preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And if you remember, Jesus had an encounter with the religious leaders in John chapter 5, and Jesus says, if you actually believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. They knew the scriptures, but missed the big E on the I chart. That is Jesus himself. But what he's saying here is that those who have not embraced the Messiah, there is a spiritual problem that's going on in the heart. Later, he says down in chapter 4, that the God of this age is blinding unbelievers from seeing. But by grace, verse 16, the Lord chooses to remove the veil from people's hearts. Remember the story of Moses. Moses would remove his veil. But in this new covenant age, as the gospel is preached, this is passive. The Lord removes it from our hearts. This is what Paul did, or so what God did, for example, in the story of Lydia in Acts 16, when it says, he opened her eyes, opened her heart to understand the message, and she believed. This is what Paul, God did for Paul. This is what God did, has done for many of us who are here today. And when this veil is lifted, when we turn to the Lord, everything changes. And I like the language here of turning to the Lord. Before this time, we are turned away from the Lord, and repentance is turning to the Lord. 
And when we do, everything changes. We praise God for that. So if you're not a Christian, that's the, that's the appeal. Turn to this Christ. He will have you. He will give you a new heart, make you a new creation, prepare you for the new creation. And that's the fifth blessing, a new heart. Sixthly, freedom. The new covenant age, the gospel that we preach, brings freedom. He says, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can see a rich Trinitarian theology in this passage, as the Spirit and Jesus are referred to in the passage uh, 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 as being divine. And, and here, you see how they're also working in harmony. Christ and the Spirit operating together in this new covenant age. And he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It literally reads in the Greek, where the Spirit of the Lord freedom. Everywhere the Spirit of God is going, there is a freedom in the gospel. Freedom from what? Well, freedom from what we just read. There is a freedom from guilt, a freedom from condemnation, a freedom from fear, a freedom from death. The Spirit of the Lord is where He is, there is freedom. And this is a freedom for obedience. It's, it's power to do what God says to do, right? We got to get this one right. This is not a freedom to do whatever you want to do. It's a freedom to now obey God. Sin only brings slavery. Sin lies to people and says, if you do this, that's where the real freedom is. Our culture believes that. But no, sin only enslaves people. The Spirit of the Lord frees people. Frees people from guilt and shame. Frees people for obedience and living for God's glory. It brings a joy. It brings a sense of peace. It gives us boldness. It fills us with hope as we gaze at the Messiah. Praise God today for the work of the Spirit who has opened our eyes to see Christ, who frees us from the shackles of sin and death, who is the guarantee of our inheritance to come. Finally, number seven, transformation. I wanted to get here a little earlier, but here we are. Paul's remarkable conclusion and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, here's the big idea of verse 18. Probably the most important thing I'll say this morning, if you're a Christian. And that is, beholding leads to becoming. That's not original. I don't know who said it. Many people have said it, I think. But the, another way to think about this is we become like that which we worship. This is a principle that's borne out throughout uh, the Bible. That those who make idols, the psalmist says, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, I think, those who make them become like them. And what he means is dead, lifeless, meaningless. But those who gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ become like him. Beholding leads to becoming. We know this at a micro level, right? You pick up the habits and mannerisms from people you admire. We used to sing that song when I was a little kid, if I could be like Mike. None of us could be like Mike. But we, we gazed at the glory of Mike, wanting to be like him, sticking our tongue out when we go for a layup. You know, wearing number 23. I had MJ posters. I had the shoes, everything. I really wanted to be like Mike, and I'm five foot ten, uh, not, not, and I can't jump very well. But the most admirable person that you could look at and adore is Jesus Christ. 
And as we behold him, we become more like him. So this is the question here that, that is getting answered for us. How do we change? And here are some popular things we're, we're told. Time plus experience is what changes you. Now, change does take time and experiences can be good, but that doesn't necessarily make you more like Christ. You can be spiritually immature your whole life. And some Christians do not get better with age. Right? We have sad story after sad story, like Uzziah the king or Solomon, who actually digressed, not, didn't make progress. Now, we need something more than time and experience. We need more time and experience gazing on Jesus. And as we behold them, we become more like him. Or we're given a number of self-help books. We're told, if you'll think positively everything, you'll change. Well, the problem of, uh, with this, of course, is it's often devoid of God. I need God to change, not my own self-help. Or what's very cut, uh, popular is simple moralism. Just straighten up, fly right, stop it, work harder. But by itself, that's just dead letter. It won't change us because the law kills us. It's powerless to change us. And you can get moralism from all sorts of religions. How we change, Paul is telling us, is by beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ or changed by the Spirit as we do that. This is not just information about Christ. It's, it's the language of adoration. You have to, as Mueller used to say, get my heart happy in the Lord every day. I have to see him. I have to behold him. And this is very important in our discipleship, in our preaching, in our parenting, seeing how people change as they gaze upon Christ from his word by the spirit were transformed. Unless you think this is reserved for the special elite forces of Christians, notice that word all. All Christians. This is what we are to do, is to see Jesus Christ and be transformed. And this is where all of history is headed. As Paul says, this too has a not yet dimension. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. As we see him, we will become like him. It's the same thing taught in Psalm 17, verse 15, when the psalmist says, As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The beholding and the likeness. The, the beholding and being transformed. And so the simple application here is, is very obvious, isn't it? Think deeply on the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Day by day by day, dwell on Christ. Behold him. Not a casual observance, but give thought and attention to him. Because my friends, this is the biggest need in your life and my life. Every day to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me get more specific. As we gaze upon Jesus eating with sinners and scoundrels, we become more loving ourselves. As we gaze upon Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we become more compassionate. As we gaze upon Jesus preaching boldly to the religious elite, we become more bold. As we gaze upon Jesus loving children, we become more tender and gentle. As we gaze upon Jesus suffering without reviling in return, we learn how to endure hardship and persecution. 
As we gaze upon Jesus forgiving sinners at the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We become more forgiving. As we gaze upon how he gave up everything for our salvation. He became poor for our sake, that we may be rich in him. We become more generous. As we see him rise from the dead, we become more firm in our faith. As we see his mercy in restoring Peter, we become merciful ourselves. As we gaze upon his eyes like fire and his feet like bronze, we become more pure. As we gaze upon Jesus reigning in eschatological glory, we become more hope-filled. This is how we change. We are being transformed, present tense, he says. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. God is doing this in his people. And the way he does this is that they set their attention on Jesus Christ and the spirit of the Lord makes them more and more like Christ. Into this image, this, this word harkens back to Genesis, the Imago Dei, great name for a church, right? We, be, we become our true selves. We become the person we were created to be apart from sin. He's doing this and he's changing us, he says, from glory to glory. That is the, the idea of an ever-increasing glory, more and more and more. How does it happen? The Spirit of God. No one is transformed apart from the Spirit. And as we gaze upon Christ, the Spirit changes us. This is what we call the process of sanctification. We have been declared righteous in Christ, but practically there's still parts of our lives that do not look like Jesus. And in this journey on earth, he is sanctifying us through and through, making us more like Christ as we behold Christ. And this all culminates in glorification. As Paul says, the Lord Jesus will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That is what we are caught up in today, church. Don't let the lawn chairs fool you. Don't let, don't let the, the outdoor thing fool you. We're caught up in glory. It, it, it may not look very uh, uh, glorious right now, this, this life we call the Christian life, this thing we call the church. But even this cantankerous fellowship in Corinth is caught up in that. Caught up in new covenant glory. We have received life. We have righteousness. This thing is permanent. We are filled with hope. We have new hearts. We've been given freedom. And the Lord, by the Spirit, is transforming us. So my big idea for you today, if you're not a Christian, listen to this verse and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. May God remove the veil and you see him and believe in him. And if you are a Christian, behold him more and more and more until you see him. And we will see him. That day is coming. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our hearts today in gratitude for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. What blessings we have received in him. And verse 18 is my prayer that this week even we would be captivated by Christ. We would see him in the pages of Holy Scripture. We would be encouraged by other Christians as they encourage us to, to gaze upon the Lord. Lord, we live in a day and a time, just like everyone else in history, but it's certainly true today of people spending hours and hours looking at the wrong stuff. We want to look at Christ. 
So I pray you would do a deep work in our lives that we may see him and be transformed more and more. In Jesus' good name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Thank you, church.